You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Uh, all right. Well, uh, good morning again. We're uh, on the kind of tell in on the back end of a series uh, that we've entitled uh, Colossians. And so uh, over the last few weeks, if you've been here with us, uh, we've been walking through uh, walking through this book written to uh, the early church at Colossae uh, by a guy named uh, Paul. He was an early uh, church leader who was radically saved by Jesus and then wrote the majority or a lot of kind of the New Testament uh, letters uh, that we have. And so what we've been kind of seeing, just if we're going to just kind of briefly summarize, uh, we can't cover the whole last few weeks. You can go back and listen to um, listen to all that. But um, kind of to briefly summarize, uh, here's kind of what we see as we're progressing towards the end uh, of this book. So at the beginning of the letter, um, Paul is addressing the church like like a church like ours, and essentially saying to them, hey, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about the fruit that's being produced among you. I've, I've heard about how the gospel has come to your community, and it's beginning to create change. It's beginning to uh, move you in such a way uh, that is having an influence um, in your city. And so Paul is just saying, hey, I'm grateful for that. Like, I'm thankful that the gospel, the way of Jesus, is doing something uh, among you, and I just want you to know that I see it and I'm grateful for it. Uh, that, that's tra- traditionally what we see in a lot of kind of Paul's letters is kind of recognizing the work that is beginning to happen uh, among these people. The other thing that we see in Colossians 1 um, is Paul kind of breaks out uh, halfway through uh, chapter 1 in this kind of really beautiful kind of um, him about Christ that has a tremendous amount of kind of theological depth and understanding. Uh, and it's just this really kind of uh, magnificent uh, hymn that it's almost as if he just kind of breaks out and sings it in the middle um, of this letter. And so one of the things that we said uh, in, in uh, week two when we were looking at it was this idea that based around this hymn that we have by Paul, uh, it's really this argument that as a people of God, we want to be a people um, who think with some theological depth, who are logical people, right? And in Boston, uh, we can embrace that. That would be, this would not work if we weren't a people with some kind of intellectual or theological integrity, right? Like it just wouldn't work here. We'd have to shut this church down uh, because people would be like, what are you talking about? And so we, we just said, hey, we want to be the type of people um, who, who do that, who are embracing uh, a certain sense of theological depth along with uh, this deep love and passion for Christ, um, that we see it's wearing itself out um, in that hymn. Uh, and then really over the last few weeks past that, uh, and this will be what we're looking at this morning as well, um, is really this idea of Christian maturity. So what type of people, if we say we're people living in the way of Jesus, what does that look like? Like on a ground level, um, day in, day out basis, what does that look like? And, and that's a lot of what Paul is addressing uh, throughout the rest of the book after you get out of Colossians chapter one. Kind of the hinge verse for us um, uh, over the series is Colossians two, uh, verse six. Uh, You can write that down and you can look at it really briefly, but this is kind of the hinge verse for the whole book. Paul says this, so then just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. So that's Colossians two, six. So he says, think about what he says there and how he says it. He says, so just as you received Christ Jesus as what? Lord. 
not as Savior, although that's important, and we've received him as Savior. So we have relationship with God the Father through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's hugely important. But the kind of the hinge verse for the book of Colossians is, just as you received Jesus as Lord, walk in him. You see that? This idea of Lord is what? It is, I've said yes to Jesus, not only as a uh, means for me to be in relationship with the Father, but I've said yes to Jesus in the sense that he, from this point forward, will be the one who dictates how I live. He'll dictate the way that I operate in relationships. He'll dictate the way that I use speech. He'll dictate the way that I use my body. He'll dictate the way that I use my resources. Jesus will be the one who I'm submitting myself to daily, weekly, yearly, by the second um, in, uh, in my life. And this is Christian maturity. This is what we see um, working itself out um, throughout the book of Colossians. Now, let me say this about this morning. So this morning is gonna be a continuation of this idea of Christian uh, maturity. And Paul is going to address really two kind of separate things. One is a highly kind of cultural thing, um, which starts in uh, Colossians 3, verse 18. He's gonna talk directly about the household and the power of the household. Now, uh, it's important that in, in reading this particular section, because um, he's gonna address, uh, well, if you have your Bible, go to Colossians chapter three, uh, starting in verse 18. Uh, so you can go there. Let me read it, and then we'll, we'll dive into uh, some of these thoughts. So Colossians 3, 18, uh, we'll do through 4.1 uh, this morning. So really easy, non-controversial text. All right, so here we go. Verse 18, Colossians 3. Uh, Wives, submit yourself to husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not become discouraged. Uh, 22, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only uh, while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you'll receive the reward of your inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. And then four, verse one, masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Okay, so Paul, here's what's gonna happen. So he's gonna carry this idea of Christian maturity into uh, the, the household. Now the household, here's what we have to remember, right? Because sometimes we read the Bible and we rightly read the Bible, well, I don't know if it's rightly, but understandably we read the Bible with a 2022 lens on, don't we? We read the Bible from our experience and also we read the Bible from our cultural moment. So all of us are shaped by our culture um, in pretty significant ways. And then we can also recognize that our kind of cultural moment is a bit different than Paul's in that sense. And so Paul is going to go after and uh, attack, redirect, uh, and really upend the cultural norms of the Greco-Roman culture in this text. And he's gonna go after something which, which they kind of called the household, which in the Greco-Roman time was the center of life, right? The, the household was the center of life. So we're, we're a bit different, right? We're a little more you know, globalized. We kind of move around, we break our mom's heart, right? Like this is what we do. We're not necessarily in that same kind of 
um, area where we're, we're at home our whole life. You know, my daughter even this morning was like, wouldn't it be so great to, to live in the same place? He was talking about my um, other extended family. To be live in the same place through your entire life, you know, kind of thing. I was like, well, yeah, I can see some benefit of that. And then also, you know, so we just kind of live in a different kind of cultural moment where it's like, I'm also like, you got to move out. You're not staying here your whole life. So anyways, um, so we live in a bit of a different moment. But for the Greco-Roman world, the household was everything. And so Paul is going to directly address the household. And the household is composed of wife, children, uh, head of the household, and the enslaved. This was a household in the Greco-Roman world. Now, I, I want to say this before we get into it. Of all of the, the, the text and the instructions that Paul gives in the New Testament, this chapter 3, 18 through 4, 1 is probably some of the most subversive teachings of Paul when it comes to our relationship with the culture. Like the, the kingdom of God, because to Paul's contemporaries, and, and this is how I want you to think about it, to Paul's contemporaries, the instructions that he gives in 18 through 4.1 was unbelievably radical. And, and, and un, it was kind of this very subversive type of thing to the Greco-Roman culture. Now, we can look at the text and, and we can almost, in some ways, if we're being honest, almost come at it from a, um, a more critical eye towards Paul as if he wasn't doing enough, right? They would have read this as unbelievably radical, unbelievably um, uh, uh, working against counterculture to the Greco-Roman culture. And, and so here, here's um, kind of how we're going to do this or how, how I want us to look at this. Um, so Paul writing to the church is going to address these different roles inside of the Roman, um, inside of the Roman Empire, which was an uh, uh, unbelievably powerful empire. And he's going to talk to women, men, uh, children, and the enslaved. So I want to talk about attitudes and instructions towards each of these. And then I want to look at and just address kind of the, um, the cultural, the subversive cultural aspects of what he's saying. So just kind of hang in there for a moment. Is I'm not gonna, I don't wanna give a ton of commentary towards, I just wanna simply say this is what he's saying, this is some of the attitudes, and then we'll look at the bottom end of that, what made it so subversive, okay? So that's kind of the, the way that we'll play this this morning. Everybody feel good about it? We're gonna we feel loose? Okay, great, all right, here we go. Uh, so chapter three, starting in verse 18, uh, he says this, Paul says this, uh, wives, submit yourself to, hus to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Okay, so what is the Greco-Roman attitude towards women? If you are, were a woman um, at this time period, you had a tremendous amount of power and authority and influence. Like you were a powerhouse. Just kidding, right? You had no power. You had no authority. You had no personal autonomy, like no agency, none whatsoever. From what we can understand about Greco-Roman culture, if you were a woman, you were primarily seen as a means for procreation, as a means for sexual activity, and as a means for um, ordering the household. That was it. Like that was your value was directly equated to your ability to reproduce children and to care for the household and to please men. Just straight up, that's, that's what it was. And so you were, if you were a woman, that was, your, um, that was kind of the level of power that you had. 
It was a, it was as horrific and terrible as you can imagine that it would be. Like it, it, it just was, that's what it was. And so that was kind of the Greco-Roman attitude. The, the Jewish attitude, there's actually an early Jewish prayer that, that Jewish men would uh, recite. Maybe you've heard this before, but they would basically thank God. So this is a, that's the Greco-Roman. The Jewish kind of side of it was, they basically would thank God that they were not created a woman. They would also thank God that they were not created um, a, a, a Gentile or, or they were not created a slave, right? That was kind of on the Jewish side of things. Not a, let's be clear, not a biblical Jewish thing, but where it had gotten to. Do you understand that? We need, to, we need to understand that distinction. That was not an ordained prayer by God. That was where they had gotten to, right? Because humanity does a really great job of doing that kind of stuff. All right, so of distorting and creating and changing things. So Paul says, okay, two wives, speaking in the household, he says, um, the, he, so the instructions that he gives to them, he says, submit yourself to the husbands um, as is fitting to the Lord. So this is what he says. He's saying, if you are uh, in a household, he's assuming a healthy culture, a healthy household, a Christian household, because he's writing to believers. And he's saying, um, wives, submit to healthy, godly leadership of the husband. Now, he's not talking about equality. He's not talking about that. He's not saying the man is more valuable. The man more, uh, um, is more valuable or has a higher sense of equality than you do. He's not speaking towards any of those things. He's saying in a, in a well, healthy household, um, the right thing is when you are submitting to your husband. Now, what does that look like practically? Because we hear that, right? I could read that and we could like we could do some kind of hermeneutical gymnastics to get around that and to say Paul doesn't say what he says, but he really says it. You know, like we could do that. But what does it act, what does it actually mean and look like? Well, uh, a couple of thoughts here. Uh, a couple of personal thoughts. So, um, first of all, where the um, we know that in households statistically where there is uh, a dad who is involved and who is healthy, like we can statistically make the argument that, that is a healthier household, that children in those households are less likely to experience a lot of difficulty. Like they are, just statistically, we know that. We know that to be a truth. And I'm not talking about men right now. We'll get to that as we progress down. But, but we understand that, that the, the healthy households are both mom and dad, both uh, male and female in the household. Now, where many of you come from broken homes, uh, I believe where, um, where that doesn't exist, like grace abounds, right? Where a male is absent, grace abounds. And there are incredibly amazing, wonderful, um, remarkable women who are raising, uh, essentially on their own, uh, are raising their kids to be strong, confident, uh, if it's a Christian household, godly children, like Grace Abounds. I come out of personally, uh, as a result of a disability that my dad experienced at a young age, I come out of a household that was predominantly led by my mom, right? So submission is not about um, ability in, in that sense. Uh, it, it's not. If you looked at my marriage, um, I rule with an iron fist. Just kidding, I don't, okay. All right, chill out, let's relax, everyone. Here's how my wife and I make decisions, right? We have decisions in front of us, we get together, we talk through it. Uh, maybe, maybe I have a thought or, or she has a thought. We kind of come together, we're kind of processing that stuff out. Um, we're praying through it, we're kind of looking in that direction. There are times in which um, both of us 
uh, are kind of like unsure of of what that looks like or what what move we're supposed to go into. And and there are, have been times where basically Katie, my wife, um, is like, okay, I know that we can't necessarily land here. Here's we've kind of looked at all these things. I'm I'm again, we're assuming healthy godly leadership. She's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna trust your decision on this. Like we've kind of laid all this out. We've kind of talked through it. I'm I'm gonna trust your your decision on that. Now in some ways that works out great because if it all falls apart, uh, it's like on me. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a part of that where it's like, hey, you, you know, like there, there's a bit of security in that sense, right? And so Paul is just simply saying like, if you're operating in a, in a household as a, as a wife, uh, you shouldn't be seeking to subvert underneath. You shouldn't be seeking to, to backdoor things. You shouldn't be manipulative. You shouldn't be um, all of these types of things. You should be one who is submitting underneath the healthy, godly leadership of your husband. If he calls you to sin, not like, Right, let's all use our brains. If he's calling you to sin, no, it's not a call to follow in all things. It's a call to honor God when um, there's healthy headship that is operating uh, in that sense. So he says, I want you to submit. Okay, look at the, the attitudes and instructions towards men. Move a bit quicker. If you were a male in the Greco-Roman world, this will surprise no one. You had all the authority, all the power, and all the agency. Now that that thread that seemed to it seemed to unfortunately carry its way through our culture and time right like in a lot of ways if you are a male um you 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 do uh have all um the perceived power uh in that cultural moment and the greco world was uh was not an exception to that rule uh, if anything the the cult the, the stuff we've been working to get away from in the unhealthy sense of of unhealthy kind of male headship it's from the Greco-Roman world. And so if you were a male in the Greco-Roman world, everything was up for grabs for you. Like you, there was nothing that was against your restrictions. So look what he says to the, uh, first to the husbands in this sense. He says, husbands love your wives. Now I read that as a husband, that feels like base level, doesn't it? Like that feels almost like Paul, is that really necessary to communicate that the husband should love his wife? Yes. Yes, it was. Again, your wife, if you were a husband in the Greco-Roman culture, was a means for procreation, a means for sex, sexual satisfaction, and a means to um, order and keep the household. That's, that's what a wife was. And so it, didn't, it wasn't assumed that you would love your wife. Now, it was assumed that you would feed her, right? It was assumed that you would allow her to live in the home, that you would do some of those things. It was not assumed that you would love her, which sounds crazy to us, right? But Paul says, husbands, love your wives, care for them, value them, put them in a place of uh, love and care um, for them. Then he says, fathers, so he kicks down. So that's husbands, and he says, fathers, Again, it's a bit of a cultural challenge. He essentially says, fathers, don't be overly harsh with your children. Again, males in this moment, in this cultural moment, uh, heads of the household had all the power, power over children, all, all those types of things. And he just says, don't be overly harsh with your children. Don't destroy them. Care for them. Love them. Disciple them. Right? Point their heart towards the way of Jesus. 
You can't be harsh and unloving towards your children and say you're a follower of Christ, right? Some of this was your experience. You can't say that you're a follower of Christ as a husband while being um, destructive in your actions as a dad. You just can't do it. You can't be overly angry. You can't do those things, love and care for your children. And then the third thing that we see uh, in 4.1 is uh, addressing the masters, which would primarily have been male in this time and period, uh, is to treat your household fairly, to treat those that are under your care inside your household um, fairly. Uh, to to do that well. Okay, everyone good here so far? So these are a bit of the attitudes and the bit of instructions without a whole lot of um, implications in that so far. So we have um, so we have uh, we have wives. Uh, then we have head of the households. These attitudes attitude towards men, which fall out as as um, husbands, fathers, and masters. Now let me speak for a moment towards slavery because you have to address it when you're looking at this particular um, text, okay? My job would be a lot easier if there was a text that said, therefore thou shalt not have slavery, right? Like that, if that was like in the Bible, that would be a super easy thing. It's not there. So how do we, um, how do we make sense and how do we come around this idea of um, speaking towards masters? And, and again, we'll get to We'll get a little more to the subversive nature of what Paul is saying and, and how that's beginning to work against the underpinnings of slavery in his cultural day, because that's very much what's happening. Um, but let's talk about it for a minute. So in the Roman world, um, there were about 70 million people in the Roman world. There were seven to 10 million people who were enslaved. Seven to 10 million people who were enslaved in the Roman occupied territory. Most slaves found themselves in slavery, either because they were sold into slavery by their parents uh, for uh, various reasons. A lot of the people that were in slavery in the Greco-Roman world were people who um, uh, were groups of people who they had taken over their land and brought them back. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily motivated by race or any of those types of things. It was primarily motivated by, in the sense that as we're taking on territories, now we're gonna take these people from these territories and bring them into slavery. That was kind of the, the operating system in the Greco-Roman world. That's how they kind of got to um, their cultural moment. Um, free males, because I want to think about this. So if you were a free male in the Greco-Roman world, you had um, the ability for both male and female slaves to do whatever you wanted to do to them, unhindered. Like it, it was, um, you, you could exploit them in any type of way that, that you wanted to. So you had virtually unrestricted access to slaves. You had unrestricted access to enslaved prostitutes for any, any kind of um, sexual reason. Like uh, essentially the kind of the social norm for the day was that, that slaves, both men and women, it was almost like, um, and, and we'll look at it more in a second, but it, well, it was almost like having access to food and water. That's how just common it was and how normative it was um, in that sense. And so there's two ways in which we see both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak against um, this idea of slavery uh, in this way. Here's the first one. So both the Old and the New Testament, uh, they both forbid a practice called man-stealing. 
So we see this in um, Exodus. We see this condemned in Exodus. We see this condemned in Deuteronomy. And we see Paul condemn this in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. And so in 1 Timothy uh, 1, 10 through 11, Paul says, um, he lists a, a whole bunch of things in that, but he basically says um, that it is prohibited and that the wrath of God is coming against and people living in the way of Jesus uh, can't be those who are slave traders or this idea of man stealing. So you are not allowed, you are prohibited as a Christian from partaking in human trafficking. You can't do it. Again, normative practice in the Greco-Roman, like we hear that and we're like, well, yeah. But in the Greco-Roman world, it was prohibited but a normative practice. And so Paul says, don't participate in it. You're not allowed to participate in it. You, you, you can't be uh, involved in any kind of aspect in that sense and way of mainstream. The second thing, and, and this is a little more subtle move against this idea of slavery in, in his kind of cultural moment, is that when Paul denounces any extramarital sexual relationships, so when Paul in his instructions says, sexual relationships is meant for the marriage for male and female, when he says that, that the, the cultural implications of that are even more complex than we would understand. Because we would read that and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like that feels like the most loving thing is to not cheat on your husband or wife, right? Like that, that feels like that makes sense, right? Now we can get into conversations about sex outside of marriage and, and, and all the difficulties and, and the brokenness around that, right? We, we can have that offline if you want. Um, but but that, the, the implications for Paul when he said that, do you know what he did when he did that? When he said sex outside of marriage is wrong, do you know how much sexual exploitation he just cut off from the Greco-Roman world? Again, if you were a male, you had free reign to both male and female slaves and servants. You had free reign to female prostitutes. Do you, do you see what Paul did there in that moment? Like he said, if you're someone following the way of Jesus, all of that is off limits. All of that is wrong. You can't participate in any of that. Do you see that? It's a little more subversive and subtle, but he's essentially saying you're not allowed to sexually take advantage of people anymore in the most marginalized. Like, like these are kind of the, the deep level um, implications for that when we're thinking about this relationship between master and slave. Uh, Heather Hart says this, she's arrived for Christianity today, talking about this relationship of master and the enslaved. She says, the relationship between master and the enslaved was maintained through the continued fear of punishment, discipline, execution, and the ability for masters to destroy any family relationships forged uh, by the enslaved. We have a whole book in the New Testament uh, that was written to, um, uh, it was written about uh, a runaway slave. Paul is writing to, it's the book of um, Philemon, and, and, and Paul is writing to me saying, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. I'm, I, it's a runaway slave. I'm sending him back to you. And he essentially says to him, I could force you by my spiritual authority to free him. And I want you to, but I want you to come to your own place to do that. Like I want you not by compulsion, but motivated by the love of God to do that. There's a whole, whole book on that. 
and, and we'll get to that book a little more uh, as we get to the bottom part. But he just says, I, I want you to free him, but I want you to do it not by force, but by um, your own uh, volition in thinking about that. Okay, good. Let, let's carry on because uh, we got a couple other things to hit. Okay, so when he, um, so when he, uh, when he says to masters to care for those under your household, the implications of that were far-reaching and very culturally uh, counter to what the Greco-Roman world had already organized. Okay, he gets to children. Let's move on down. He gets to children. And again, if you're a child, you don't have a ton of um, power at this point, not a lot of agency. And he says in verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now we have this verse in my daughter's room. We have it in the bathroom. We have it, I'm just kidding. All right, so um, th this is uh, essentially what he's saying is, hey, if you're a child and you're operating in, again, a healthy household, um, you're to be one uh, who obeys your parents and, and everything. This pleases the Lord that when you do that, when you live in such that way. Okay, last group here. Um, last group speaking towards those who are enslaved, we see in verse two. Um, Aristotle was a Greek philosopher who greatly shaped um, Greek thought and greatly shaped kind of the cultural norms of their day. Uh, this is what Aristotle said about justice when it comes to the master-slave relationship uh, at this time. Um, he, he said uh, about justice in the master-slave relationship, he said that there can be no injustice relating to things that are one's own. So he would have said, you can't speak about injustice when it comes to the master-slave relationship. This would have been understanding in the Greco-Roman world. You can't speak about injustice that may be happening between those two relationships because there can't be injustice um, covering or about in concern to what is one's property. You see that? This is deeply embedded in the Greco-Roman world. It's wired their life in this sense. This is, this is what we understand about it. We're gonna see why this is more subversive. Okay, verse two, listen to what he says. He says, slaves, speaking to the slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched, but as people pleasers, work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord in your work. Verse 23, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you'll receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. That verse alone is incredibly powerful. That he's saying to them, you are gonna receive an inheritance from the Lord. That inheritance is what? You, you will receive and be in the presence of God the Father, of a loving God who cares for you. He says, this inheritance is for you. It's for you. You serve the Lord Christ, verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. So in verse 25, he is actually speaking to those who are enslaved. Now we'll speak towards why that's such a powerful thing to do in a moment, but I just wanna point that out in that sense. Um, for the wrong do we pay it for whatever wrong he has done. So he says, okay, if you're a slave, put your best work forward and work not only when you're being watched. Okay, here's the countercultural things that I want us to look at. You can go ahead and throw those up on the screen because I think this will be helpful for us as we think about. Here's the cultural shifts that begin to happen as a result of Paul addressing these household uh, roles and 
relationship. Here's the first thing. He's addressing each of them. So male, female, enslaved, and children as responsible individuals in the kingdom of God. The sheer fact, you understand this, the sheer fact that he is writing to slaves, females, and children tells us almost everything that we need to know. Like Paul's assumption is that they are in the room. You see that? Like Paul's assumption is that the, the, the wife, as this, is, this letter's being read, as this letter's being played out, is in the room and hears it and has responsibility. Like he, he's seeing them. He's like, when you give responsibility to someone, you're identifying their humanity. And so he's saying to them, all of you have, all of you have uh, responsibility. Like all of you have um, work to do. All of you are, are working um, in the way of Jesus. And so I'm addressing the husband, the head. I'm addressing the, the mom, the wife. I'm addressing the enslaved. I'm addressing the children. You all have responsibility to faithfully follow the way of Jesus. This would, would have been unheard of in the Greco-Roman culture. Why would you be addressing um, individuals who have no worth and have no value? Why would you be giving them responsibilities? Like instructions to, to masters uh, uh, in a Greco-Roman world, it was like, hey, you should take care of your slaves because that's in your best interest. Not you should take care of slaves because they have value and human dignity. Okay. Second thing, he assumes all of them are in the family of God. All of them. He, he, he's saying to them, uh, all of you, by honoring God and following the way of Jesus, like he's saying each of you are in the family of God. We know from the letters and from uh, historical data that the church was composed of Jew and Gentile, of free and slave, of male and female. This is what made the church so radically different. This is why contemporaries of Paul would have found the Christian faith along with all of these things so dangerous to the normative pace of the Greco-Roman world, that all of these individuals are in the family. Paul actually says in the book of Philemon, um, Paul says, in, in this is 1, 15 and 16, uh, so he, he's speaking towards Onesimus, who's around. he says, for perhaps uh, this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. This would have been unheard of. Would have never happened. No one would have given dignity and value to those who were a part of the enslaved system in the early Greco-Roman world. They just wouldn't have done it. Number three, uh, these commands recognize that there is reciprocity, that reciprocity exists. So he's saying you have responsibility as a wife, you have responsibility as a husband to love and care for one another, you have responsibility to care for those enslaved. If you're enslaved, you have responsibility to work. He's saying uh, it's, not all, uh, it's not all lean to one side or this side or that side. It's like, no, there's reciprocity all the way across the board. Again, breaking down um, normative, uh, breaking down cultural norms of the day. And say, no, all, all of these um, people and all of these um, individuals have care. Uh, William Aikman says this. He says, civilization varies with the family and the family with the civilization, right? Talking about the, the 
value. He says its highest and most complete realization is found where enlightened Christianity prevails, where woman is exalted to her, uh, to her true and lofty place is equal with the man, where husband and wife are one in honor, influence, and affection, and where children are a common bond of care and love. This is when society operates um, in the way in which it should. So again, Paul, looking at this idea of Christian maturity, is saying that even Christian maturity has to find itself out in these common household uh, rules um, and operations. Again, the household was key. Paul had to speak towards the household. Had to. It would have been irresponsible of him not to. And so he says, okay, if you're following the way of Jesus, let's talk about all the rules and um, relationships in which you operate that you know are so important. Okay, everyone good there? Or not good? We can talk about it later. Okay, great. All right, kick down to two, verse four, two. Let me end this out here. So that's in the close circle of individuals. Now he's gonna talk about the outside, kind of outside the household um, code. And this is, this is a, remember, this is the last thing that Paul is gonna say to them. Uh, other than like say hey to my buddy and, and this leader in the church. Like there's some of that that goes on. This is what he says. He says, devote yourselves, this is um, 4-2. He says, devote yourselves to prayer and stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, also pray for us that God may open a door for us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, uh, chains so that I may make it known as I should. So here's the first thing he does. He, he talks about this idea of being devoted to prayer. Now, the Greek form of devoted to prayer there is in the imperative, which just puts a whole lot of emphasis behind it. If you were reading it and he says devoted to prayer, you would say, um, you would say devoted to prayer, right? There's like some emphasis, you wouldn't say devoted to prayer? It was like the emphasis on it. And so he says, be an individual who is devoted to prayer. Now, if you look in the New Testament, the majority of the times post-crucifixion or post-resurrection that Jesus shows up, what is the church doing? Well, they're hiding for one thing, but they're also in prayer. We see that the, the church's natural response, these were people formed by Jesus, right? These were the, the, the examples that we have of people that were in their closest proximity to Jesus were doing what, were doing what when Jesus was gone? They're praying. So we know it's normative. Jesus, if you study his life, and we've talked about prayer extensively, you can go back in our spiritual formation series and, and look at a whole sermon on prayer. You can go to, um, uh, we have a prayer page on our, at gracecityboston.com, a prayer page with teachings and that sermon's on there, all kinds of things. Um, but he, but he's, you can see the life of Jesus is when breaking away to devote himself to prayer, speaking with the Father. This is why we do a prayer room every Wednesday. We're about to kick that back up for the summer. That's why we do it because we wanna be a people devoted to prayer. This is spiritual maturity, right, is, is in prayer. So he says, be devoted. Uh, one thing that I'll just point out briefly um, is that you'll notice Paul's request in his prayer um, is not a request for personal comfort or security. Not that those are wrong prayers to pray, like I pray those. <laughs> like it's not that they're wrong, but the content of Paul's prayer is what? He's, he's saying, hey, I want to leverage my situation and the circumstances I am for the glory of God. This is the prayer, that God would use the circumstances he's in for the glory of God. We know in Philippians 1, uh, 12 through 14, Paul essentially says to them, my imprisonment has been known all throughout the imperial guard and people are coming to know Jesus 
as a result of my imprisonment. So we know it was working. We know it had an effect. It was giving confidence to uh, the brothers and the sisters because of his imprisonment. So he says, pray, pray that I will continue um, to, to be able to reveal the mystery of Christ, right? This mystery of Christ is what? That neither slave nor free, that neither Jew nor Gentile, that male or female, that we're all one in Christ. This is the mystery that God's re- reconciling all people. So he says, pray that I do that. Final thing here, uh, and then I'll, I'll pray us out. Verse five, five and six. He says, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer um, each person. So he says, as someone living in the way of Jesus, seeking to be mature, he says, act wisely towards outsiders. Make the most of your time, right? Leverage your time. Be smart about how you're thinking about things. Verse six, he says, let your speech, like, um, right, speech is one of the most powerful um, things that we have. Is it not? Like, it is, it is like the, the, the power of speech is incredibly powerful. It has the ability um, to bring life or bring death, right? Like, whoever, um, whoever came up with the saying, um, whoever came up with the saying, six and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me, right? That's the dumbest saying in the world. Like, that had to be the bully that came up with that saying because you've never experienced harsh words. And Paul says, your speech should be gracious. Your speech should be seasoned with salt, which just simply means salt was one of the most valuable resources of their day. What did salt do? It preserved their food. They didn't have refrigerators. It was a preservative and it brought flavor. And so he says, your speech should preserve life with individuals and with others and it should bring flavor. That's what it should do, right? So maybe this morning, maybe you're trying to get your head around some of the other stuff we talked about, but maybe this morning you just need to hear that Christian maturity means your speech is gracious, it's full of life, and full of flavor. These are the type of individuals that we need to be. And then the, thing, the final thing that he says is we need to be, um, our speech needs to be a speech that is prepared, that we know what we're talking about to the best of our ability. And if we don't, we're saying we don't, but we'll find out and that we're doing the necessary work to understand um, the faith that we've given our life to. And so Paul says, this is the gospel. This is Christian maturity. That when you say yes to Jesus, you are secure in the relationship with the Father. And then out of that security, the implications out of that security is that now Jesus is Lord. And there's no area, hear this, I'm gonna pray and be done. There is no area of your life outside of the Lordship of Jesus. You do not, as someone walking in the way of Jesus, have the ability to say to God, have the ability to say to Jesus, not here. I don't want you to mess with this relationship. I don't want you to mess with my resources. I don't want you to mess with my lifestyle. I don't want you to mess with that. This is off limits. Paul says that's not Christian maturity. Christian maturity is open-handed before God the Father, saying, shape me in whatever way you want to shape me. Work against the cultural norms. Work against my personal bias. Would you do it?